Dying 
in the book of Galatians this morning, Galatians chapter number four. Galatians chapter number four. Now, you're studying Galatians in the adult Sunday school division as well, so you're getting a double dose, but I'll tell you, this is, uh, we're not going to get everything out of this book anyhow. This is a wonderful, wonderful, deep theological book, so it's, uh, don't worry about uh, me doubling up on you. There'll be plenty there for you folks to teach for a while. Now, in the book of Galatians, chapter 4 and verse 4, why don't we stand? We do this because we show respect to the Word of God itself. Galatians chapter 4 and uh, verse number 1, I will read and follow with me in your Bible, please. Paul says, now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child under 18 or 21, differeth nothing from the servants in the household, though he be Lord of all. But he is under the tutors and the governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so, he compares it, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. And then this great, great passage, when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye or we are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. The word Abba there is the Aramaic word for Papa. It's a term of affection. Or dad, like daddy. It's a personal term that you would use to address your own father, not nearly as formal as father, Abba, Papa, Daddy. Wherefore, he continues, thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. And Lord, will you add your blessing to this passage of Scripture? And let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my Redeemer. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And you may be seated. For several weeks, I have been speaking to you on the subject of how God deals with all of his people on the earth, both the saved and the unsaved. God's plan with men if you will. And the reason I started the series is in being in the ministry as long as I have and in pastoring and preaching as much as I have, it really concerns me to see the way that salvation has been cheapened, even trivialized in our country today. It used to be that you would mention certain topics, and I've read about it. I've never really seen it a great deal, but people would shout with joy. Well, there's not much shout in the average Baptist church today. There's not a lot of expression of joy. There's not near enough emotion if we were really passionate about something as much as I feel we should be. And part of it, I think, is because we have talked so much about the simple plan of salvation, we've made it over-simplistic. 
And people right now just, oh, I believe the gospel. Christ died on the cross, rose from the dead. I believe that I'm saved. And they go right on, and it doesn't seem to mean very much to them at all. There's not much heart in what they say. And certainly in many cases, in too many cases, their life doesn't reflect that. I'm a little afraid that in our attempts to make it simple, we have made it common. In our attempts to make it understandable, we have ceased to make it wondrous. And the most wonderful thing in all the world, if you're a Christian, is your salvation. More than anything in the world, it ought to stir your heart to joy and to blessing. It ought to be at the very core of all cores of your values. I am a child of the King. I am bought and paid for with the blood of Jesus Christ. And it ought to thrill us because it is thrilling, the prospects of it. Now, let me go back because some things bear a little repetition to remember them. Let's begin where God begins, and God began with the law, with the law. He gave the law to Moses upon Mount Sinai. Moses came down and gave it to the people, and it was taught to every Jew and still is being taught to the Jewish people today. Now, but I've tried to repeat to you that the purpose of the law, now listen carefully, don't miss this. The purpose of the law was never to save anybody. You don't go to the law for salvation. The purpose of the law was that people would be saved by seeing their need in the law. That we would look at the law and it says, thou shalt have no other gods before me, but I've had other gods before him in my heart. Then I would look in the law and it says, thou shalt not steal, but I have stolen. I look in the law and it says, thou shalt not bear false witness, but I have. There have been times I haven't told the truth. And so every one of us have broken the law of God. Now, there's no power in trying to keep the law to save you. The, but the law was given to us that people would see their need. The law, number one, reveals sin to us. Now, remember this. In the book of of, uh, Romans, chapter 3 and verse 20, the Bible there says that by the law is the knowledge of sin. Were it not for God's law, you wouldn't know that right, you wouldn't know what is right and what is wrong. The Apostle Paul said, I would not know that it would be wrong to covet if it were not for the law. But the law tells me, the Tenth Commandment, that covetousness is an offense to God. It breaks His law. In 1 John chapter 3, it even defines for me what sin is in relation to the law. Let me say it again. Don't want you to miss it. Sin is defined by an action's relationship to the law. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, sin is the transgression of the law. So when I transgress or trespass upon or break the law, that is what we today know as sin. So the law reveals sin to us. It defines sin. It's God's moral code. The law reveals our own helplessness. When I look into the law, there's no help there for me. In fact, if there's anything there, there's despair. There is hopelessness because the law gives me no method whereby I might come to salvation. 
one of our members was telling somebody about one of my sermons, and they sent me a text and said, well, I told my friend about it, and I was real excited about what you preached about Sunday morning, and I was sharing it with this guy, and he's a Christian, but I take it sort of a nominal Christian. He said, well, you better be careful now. You're going to become a legalist. You better be careful there. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to take people's hope away from them. I want to tell you, my friend, if you're depending on the law, you don't have any hope to take from because there is no salvation. There is nothing positive in the law. The law is an ominous judge, and it judges everyone. In fact, it condemns every single person. So it reveals to us we're helpless. We can't save ourselves. And the law, thirdly, makes us aware of our need. The law drives me to the cross of Jesus Christ for my salvation. The law doesn't drive me to the pastor. The law doesn't drive me to the church. The law doesn't drive us to a denomination. The law drives us not to good works. It drives us to the cross of Jesus Christ where there is hope aplenty for anybody who will visit there with the right heart attitude. Now, that got, so God gave us the law first to help us understand our need for the Lord Jesus Christ and for the gospel. And now we pick up here in Galatians chapter 4 and verse number 4, and just follow with me in your Bible here. In chapter 4 of verse 4, when the fullness of time was come, then it says, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, and made under the law. Notice with me, God sent forth his son. That's his deity. You know that Jesus Christ is both divine and human. He has dual natures, we would say. Well, God sent forth his son. That's his deity. And then notice what it says, made of a woman. He went through a pregnancy in Mary's womb. Made of a woman. That's his humanity. So here we find out in one little phrase that our Savior is fully God and our Savior is fully man. Now continue with me in verse 5. When the fullness of time, and God operates on the timetable, doesn't he? He sent forth his Son, deity, made of a woman, humanity, made under the law, which means he was a Jew. He was born as a member of the Jewish race the people that use the law for their national code of laws, if you will. And then notice the next verse, what it says here in verse 5, to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. My, what a glorious passage. To redeem them that were under the law. Now, the Jews had the law directly given to them. Moses had, him, had the law written on the tables of the ten tables, or the two tables with the ten commandments. We are Gentiles. We haven't been taught the law, the Torah, in the same way that the Jews were. However, do you know what the book of Romans says? It says that we know by nature, we know instinctually what the law teaches. He says God has written on the hearts of every person his law. Now listen to me. Did you get that? God has written on the heart of every man, woman, and boy and girl in the whole world, God has written on their hearts his law. What does that mean? That means that someone who doesn't know right from wrong and never were taught the Ten Commandments and never attended church, God has put within their conscience, they know it's wrong to steal. 
And you can go to the most obscure tribe on the planet today, and though they never have seen a Bible, they have a law against stealing or taking someone else's wife or husband. Or uh, they'll have laws against things that you can say and not say, profanity and whatever their language calls that. In other words, man has upon his conscience the law of God written. And so whether you're Jew or Gentile, we need to be redeemed, and Christ came for that purpose. We know that redemption, that word redemption, is a very, very profound biblical word. To redeem someone means that, or to redeem something means we buy it back. If I go pawn my watch at the pawn shop, I have to go back and redeem it. I have to pay it back. Sometimes there's a kidnapping and we pay redemption money to buy back that person that's being held captive or hostage. That term redeem is such an important word. Actually, we use the word saved here. In our modern uh, theology, we tend to talk about being saved. A better biblical term many times is I'm redeemed. I've been redeemed. And that puts the emphasis not upon me, I'm saved. It puts the emphasis upon what Christ has done for us that he bought us back. He bought us back when we were condemned under the law, when we all were sinners and so much needed his saving, his saving favor. And Christ came and shed his blood, as we've been talking about for the last few weeks. Christ became our Passover lamb, if you will, and the blood was shed that would cover us. Christ became the scapegoat to bear away our sins as he hung upon the cross. The Bible says he bore our sins in his body. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 14, there's a wonderful, wonderful passage. Here's what it says. Listen to it carefully. That we are redeemed, if we're saved, we are redeemed from all iniquity. We are redeemed from, say the word with me, all all iniquity, everything that you ever did that broke the law of God, we have been redeemed. We have been purchased by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10, you're right there. Just slip back with me. Let me show you that again because it's a teaching we really need to emphasize. Galatians 3 and 10, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all the things that are written in the book of the law to do them. In other words, if you don't keep the law perfectly, then the curse of the law is upon you. But go down to verse 13 now. But Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. Isn't that wonderful? We are not under the law anymore. He was made a curse for us. And he hung upon the tree and took the curse, the penalty, the condemnation of the law upon himself. And so the Bible says there in Galatians 3.13, we have been redeemed. In Titus 2 and 14, we've been redeemed from all iniquity, every sin that we've ever committed. You know, I don't know what got me to doing this, but God was just stirring my heart 
uh, as I was preparing these messages back some time ago, a couple months ago now, I guess. And there's something I hate about myself that I don't like at all, and it's a tendency sometimes to be self-righteous in my own thinking. And uh, don't you smirk at me because I think I'm not the only person in the building with that problem. I can compare myself pretty well to other people in my own mind if I'm not awfully careful. And I started, I just sat down. Now, I hadn't done this in years, but I made a list of things that I remembered, times that I had sinned that I can still remember. The time when as a little boy, I told you about it not long ago, I cursed and used God's name in vain. I was a little toddler in first or second grade, and I was in a school, and there was a big, some big boys, some eighth, ninth, tenth grade boys, and they were cursing, using God's name in vain. And I, I modeled them. And I was a kid. But you know, I still remember that. I remember the time that uh, my brother and I, it was snowing. We lived in West Virginia. We were little kids, and we were riding our sleds, and somebody produced a pack of cigarettes. And so Bill and Paul and two or three other little boys, man, we were sucking those cigarettes down like crazy. I mean, we were burning them, you know, about one every three minutes. And my mother said, you boys been smoking when we came in. I said, no, I haven't. She said, you've been smoking? I didn't smell it on you. No, ma'am, I haven't. She said to my brother, Paul, let me smell your breath. So Paul goes, yeah, you've been smoking. Sit over there. You're going to get it. She said, Bill, let me smell your breath. She said, do it again. For some miraculous reason, an angel came. My mother said, well, I don't think you have been smoking. And I lied my way out of it. Now, I'm telling you the truth. I'm holding the Bible in church on Sunday morning. I'm telling you the truth. I lied my way out of it. That stayed on my conscience. I must have been 50 years old when one day I said, Mom, there's something i got to tell you. I said I confessed it to the Lord, but i got to tell it to you too, Mom. Isn't that funny how things like that stick in your mind? And yet, praise the Lord today, I've been forgiven. I have been forgiven, not because of anything I did, but because of the marvelous grace of the Lord Jesus. And he has redeemed me from all my iniquities. There's some more, and I ain't going to tell you about them. But you understand, and I'm trying to help you identify, because don't sit there with that halo shining. Every one of us. If we're believers today, we're redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, not because of anything good in us. Amen? And you know what Romans 6, 14, it says you're not under the law after you're saved. So I'm not under the law anymore. God said, okay, I've taken the law. Christ fulfilled it. You're in Christ. So no longer am I going to judge you by the law. You are under grace now. Mark that in your Bible, Romans 6 and 14. You are not under the law. Say that with me again now. You are not under the law. Now, that that doesn't mean you can go out and do anything you want because I'm going to show you in a moment a different motive for your life. Now, millions of people, though, have misunderstood this. Millions of people who want to please the Lord. 
but they are not trained in the gospel. They haven't had the opportunities that you've had in listening to biblical preaching and studying the Bible and being around God's people. And so these people are religious. They even perhaps want to please the Lord, but somehow in their mind, they get it all mixed up and they think, I've got to try to keep the law to be saved. And there are people who depend exclusively on their ability to live the law for their salvation, and they're always defeated people. They're going around because every day they break it, and they know that, and their conscience just constantly eats them up. There are other people who mix the two. They say, I believe you have to believe in Jesus Christ, but I believe you also have to live it, meaning you got to keep the law. you got to live a certain moral standard. And they're not depending fully and only and solely and totally and completely upon the cross work of Christ. They're dependent upon the cross plus living a good life. Well, that's why the book of Galatians was written, because they were mixing together law and grace. And they don't mix their oil and their water. And so today, if you are truly a Christian, you're not dependent at all upon your ability to keep the law. You are depending totally upon what Christ did for you, that he redeemed you, that you've been redeemed from all iniquity, that Christ died for our sins, that we have been redeemed from the curse of the law. In Romans six 14, we're no longer under the law. And millions of people misunderstand that, and I so want you to listen. You see, it is simple to be saved on one hand, but on the other hand, it's so easy to get confused and to misunderstand. Millions of people have mis- misunderstood that and they've mixed law and grace, even preachers. Do you know, have you ever read the story of John Wesley? Boy, it'd be a great read for you. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, came to America as a missionary, trusting in his his morality and his good life and his faith in Christ. He left and went back to England, and while going back to England, he was in a storm on the boat. There were a group of Moravians over there on the boat, and they were singing praise to God in the midst of this huge storm. Wesley was cringing over here, thinking he was going to die in the storm, and, 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 and he said, I don't have what they have. He got back to England and went with his brother and a group of others, and they read the preface to Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans, and he said, while they were reading that book, my heart was strangely warmed. That was his term. My heart was strangely warmed on Aldersgate Street. And John Wesley said, I was an unconverted preacher until that day because I was not depending on the gospel and that Christ died for our sins and for all our iniquity. I was depending upon what Christ did plus my good works to get my way to heaven. There's a song in our book, and if I had to pick out one song that gives you the Christian faith in one verse, this would be it. Listen carefully to these words. Free from the law, oh, happy condition. Jesus has bled, and there is remission. Cursed by the law, 
and bruised by the fall, Christ hath redeemed us once for all. Isn't that good? My, that blesses my soul. Let me read it again to you. Free from the law, oh, happy condition. Jesus has bled, and there is remission. Cursed by the law and bruised by the fall, Christ hath redeemed us once for all. Praise the Lord. That ought to bring a note of joy to your heart today, my friend, if you're a saved person. So what does it mean now to be redeemed? And my message today is our new relation and our new motive. And let's talk about that relationship because after redemption, we have a new relationship with God. Now look again in Galatians chapter 4, if you will, there in your Bible with me. And verse number 5, the new relationship is this. Christ came to redeem us that we're when we were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And so after redemption, God adopts us into his family, and we have a new relationship with him. In fact, it's a very personal, intimate relationship. We call him Papa. We call him Daddy. He's not just some distant theological being out there in space somewhere, He's our heavenly papa, our heavenly dad, if you will. I've watched people here in the church who adopt children, and it's always interested me. Why does anybody want to take on the responsibility of a human being for 18 or 21 or today 34 years? (laughs) Why do they want to take on that responsibility? For someone that they, there's no relationship to them, they don't even know. Right now, it's a picture that some adoption agency showed them. They might even fly to China or India or somewhere, Mexico, and a little child in a different country. Why in the world would they want to do that? And I know why they want to do that. Because as parents, there's something within us, we want to have that baby. We want to have that one to love, and we want that one to love us. In that way, we are in the image of God. We want to love that. We want someone to love, and we want someone who will return that love to us. And so we adopt that little child, and that tells us a hint about our heavenly Papa's heart. He looked down here, and here we are lost. He gave us the law so we would see our desperate need for the Savior. And he sent the Savior, and he paid the price, and he redeemed us from all iniquity. And Christ died for our sins. And now all the impediments, the separation is removed. And so that just heavenly Papa can adopt us into his family. John 1, 12 tells us how that happens. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Sons of God. You weren't naturally born into God's family because you were a member of the human race. Jesus said you have to be born again. And as many as received him by faith, he gave them power to become his son. 
Look at Galatians 3.26 there. Just slip back a page. Galatians 3 and 26. You are the children of God, not by your natural birth, but by faith in Christ. By faith in Christ, you are adopted into the heavenly Papa's family. Now, there's a lot of confusion about that today, and I want to, I want to, I want to talk to you for a moment about something because I want FBT people to be well taught in the Word of God. I don't want you to just know enough about salvation that you just know the absolute basics. I want you to understand it so you can hold on to it in hard times and so you can understand it and your heart will be stirred by your beliefs, your faith. And a lot, much confusion has resulted from uh, among unsaved people about this idea of God being the heavenly Father of everyone. I think by misapplication of the Lord's Prayer. Now listen carefully. You see, the Savior never taught unsaved people to pray the Lord's Prayer. He never taught the unredeemed people to say, Our Father who art in heaven, they're not His Father. Or He is not their Father. When Jesus taught the Lord's Prayer, go with me. Everything in the Bible is about context, determining the meaning of the Scripture. So the disciples approached Jesus one day. They've been watching him pray. And one of the disciples, the name's not given, but one of the 12 comes to him and says, Lord, teach us to pray. And he said, okay, I will. And he gathered his 12 disciples around him. He didn't gather the multitudes. He wasn't talking to unsaved people. He was talking to the 12 most devoted Christians that anybody would pick out on the whole earth. And he said to them, when you pray, pray in this manner, our Father. But he didn't stand up and teach the whole world that. He taught believers that. He taught redeemed people to pray, our Father who art in heaven. An unsaved person cannot honestly say, our Father who art in heaven. Think about that. An unsaved person cannot honestly pray, our Father who art in heaven. They're not his, God is not their father. I went to school back in the times when in the state of South Carolina, we said the Lord's Prayer every morning. Somebody would read a scripture over the PA set, and then we would all stand and salute the flag and say the Lord's Prayer. And there we were. And I remember high school assemblies when there was 1,700, 1,800 people in the assembly at Edmonds High School in Sumter. And we would stand there, and we would pray together, all right, let's pray. And we'd bow our heads, and we'd say, Our Father who art in heaven. Some of the people praying that prayer that day were devout Christians and loved the Lord. Others were absolutely pagan in everything about them. They might have uttered the words, but that has brought confusion. You see, let me tell you something. This teaching of the fatherhood of God is one of the most diabolical teachings in all the world. God is not the father of everyone. Go with me to the book of Matthew chapter 13, and let me show you in the words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. God is not the father of everyone. You have to be adopted into his family. You have to be born into his family. 
And religious people are the hardest people on earth to get to see that. And if we tell everybody that God's your father and they haven't been saved, we take away their motivation for ever being saved. Jesus is talking about his kingdom here in Matthew chapter 13 and verse number 38. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. But the tares, he just taught the parable of the tares, are the children of the wicked one. Notice in that verse, two kinds of children. The children of the kingdom, the saved, the redeemed, and the children of the wicked one. Words can't be clear. Jesus divided the world into two classes. Children of the wicked, children of the redeemed, or the children of the kingdom in this case. In John chapter 8, verse number 44, he's talking to the Pharisees, and they're plotting how they can get rid of him and kill him. Do you know what he said to them? Boy, he made friends that day. In exasperation, finally, in John 8, 44, Jesus turned to the Pharisees, and he said, you are of your father the devil. Why, in our politically correct world, I'm, I'm, I'm giving a long explanation because I don't want to be misunderstood. Jesus didn't give any, uh, uh, he didn't give any explanation. You're your father of the devil. You're the devil's son there, sir. And so when we, when we teach everybody that God is their father just by virtue of the fact that they're a human being, we've taken away their motivation for salvation. We've made them think they have the privileges of being a child of God, and they don't until they're saved. And we've also tamped the whole thing down now to the point that nobody's excited about their salvation. If God is everybody's father, then ho-hum. But boy, when you truly understand the teaching here that God, through the blood of Jesus Christ and through the sacrifice on Calvary, has made a way for us to enter his family. Man, there's an old gospel song that says, praise God, I'm a child of the king. His royal blood now flows through my veins. Well, that makes me have a different outlook on life now, doesn't it? Amen? Praise the Lord. Then Galatians chapter 4, verse 7, he elevates it one more time. He not only says, You were servants in the household like a little child before he comes to his majority. And then you became sons, you were adopted, but moreover, now we're heirs of God. Verse number seven, which meaning means as an heir that God has some future plans for us. Amen. God has some future plans. They involve heaven. They involve rewards. They involve a glorious eternity with him and with our loved ones forever and ever. That's why I don't understand it when we're so nonchalant about being saved. It looks to me like it ought to be the keynote thing. It just, that bell of joy ought to be ringing in our hearts. I was lost in sin. The devil was my father, believe it or not. I'm a child of the wicked one. And then Jesus saved me, and now I'm adopted into his family, and I'm looking forward to the day when I'm going to be an heir of everything that he possesses. The third thing is the new motive. The redeemed not only are adopted into his family, but we have a new motive. You see, we look at people's actions 
And if we're not careful, we judge them always by their action. And sometimes, obviously, that's a big part of it. However, you can't always judge a person's behavior. You don't know. It's more accurate if you know what's motivating their behavior. There are people who work their fingernails off over religion or work for a church. And uh, they're doing it with the wrong motive in mind. God looks at our hearts. He knows our motives. He knows why we do what we do. And when we see what God has done for us this morning, ladies and gentlemen, we, it should produce a new motive in our heart. And that motive is love for our Heavenly Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. What motivates you? It should be love. And we go to the cross and our hearts ought to just burst with love and gratitude for our Lord and what he did. What did Jesus say? John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. Oh, I know people who keep the commandments, but they do it out of this glassy-eyed, self-disciplined sense of duty. No, no, no. That's not the way the Christian life's to be lived. Our motivation is, I love the Lord so much after what He did for me. I could never repay Him, no matter what price I would ever pay. 2 Corinthians 5 and 14. Just flip back there. That's near where you are. And it tells us again about this motive power of love. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 5, in verse number 14, The love of Christ constrains us. Look at that word constrain. To constrain something is to force it, to require it, to demand of it. The love of Christ constrains me. It holds on to me. Not the love that I have for him, but the love that took him from the cross that love that took him to Calvary becomes the greatest motivating force in all of my life. Question. Question for everybody here. Do you love him this morning? Do you really love Jesus? Do you love him? The man came to Jesus and said, what must I do? And Jesus said, you love the Lord with all your heart your soul, your mind. This is the great commandment. Keep it and all the rest will fall into line. Question, do you love him? Is your heart cold today? Then go back to Calvary. Do you love the Lord Jesus? I don't love him enough. I don't love him as much as I want to love him. But I love him. Do you love the Lord, truly love the Lord today? Is that a driving force in your life? Here are three sons taking care of three elderly fathers. They're they're the sole caregiver of of these elderly men that they all call father, three different ones. The first one, though, I look down into his heart. He's caring for his father. He does the same thing as the others. But he's got one motive in mind. 
I've got to take care of that old man. If I don't, he'll disinherit me, and I want that money. Second one, I've got to take care of him because people will not think well of me if I abandon my father. I'll be talked about in the community. Cold duty. They do the same thing, but the motive is different. Third one, I love that man. He gave me life. And whatever it takes, I'm going to do it for him. You see the difference? Motive. The new relation, I'm a son of God through the cross. The new motive, I love him and I seek to please him. When I was a boy, my mother was the dearest person on earth to me. In fact, people would call me sometimes, Billy's a mama's boy. And now I'm glad I was. Because she was a saintly, godly woman. And I love my mother. And she was a tender woman. And sometimes I'd be tempted to do something. And then sometimes I'd stop. I'd say, if I do that, that'll disappoint my mother. If my mother finds out about this, she's going to cry. I don't want to hurt my mother. Of all the people alive on the planet, I love Miss Hallie more than anybody else. And that was the mo- a motivating force in my life. But when we think about the Lord Jesus, he did more for us than any mother. And we don't serve him out of fear or out of duty. That's when we fall into apathy and indifference when we start doing that. We love him because he first loved us. Our heads are bowed. You have heard me speak today about the new relationship that people have when they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of their sins. How that God adopts us into his family based upon the fact that Christ died on the cross for our sins. And since he paid for our sins, we no longer have to pay for them. And now the Lord invites us into his family. He said, as many as receive him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. Would you like to become God's child today? You're not just because you're a human being. God is your creator as a human being. But he is the father of those who put their faith in Christ. I talked about that in the message. And so today, if you've never received Christ, and you're not a part of his family today, if you've never been born again into the family of the Lord, why don't you do that right now by simply praying a simple prayer? And and just pray words like this. You you can uh, shape your own prayer. Just stop and get quiet inside and say, Lord, today I heard the message. It spoke to my heart. And today I want to be your child. I want to be born into your family. And then repent sincerely of your sins, which means you change your mind about sin. You're going one way and you change and you go in the opposite direction. As unsaved people, we've spent our life moving towards sin giving in to it without even any hesitancy. Now as believers, 
we turn our face against the wind, as it were, and we turn against sin, and we turn to Christ in faith. We accept his gospel, that he died for our sins. We put our confidence and trust and faith in that. And then we just invite him to come in. And by faith, the Bible says, he makes us righteous and he adopts us into his family. If you've never done that, boy, I wish you would do that today. That's why we, above all, that's why we have this program. And then part of the message today, I spoke to you about that your motive changes once you are a child of God. We don't serve the Lord out of fear. We don't serve the Lord out of just resolute duty. We serve the Lord because we love Him. We owe Him so much. We have so much that He's done for us that out of gratitude, we would be willing to walk through the fire for Him because we want to please Him. We love Him with all of our heart. And maybe I'm speaking to some Christians and you're far from the Lord today. You were saved, but you drifted away. And now you're not living for the Lord. Well, he wants to welcome you home. You're still his child. You ask him, you ask him to help you to repent. You confess your sins. Just name them. Call them right out. Tell him what they are. And then you pray to him and ask for his forgiveness. And ask him to give you strength and, and to increase your love for him so that you will want to serve the Lord Jesus. Let me know if I can be of help to you. You can contact us in any of the ways listed on the screen. If you'd like a copy of today's message, let us know and we'll get you a CD for it. And uh, thank you again for watching. I hope you'll have a blessed week. I'll look forward to seeing you next week right here on Baptist Temple Hour. Thank you and God bless you. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of the Baptist Temple Hour. If you would like a copy of today's program, send your request and payment to the Florence Baptist Temple, P.O. Box 12809, Florence, South Carolina, 29504. Be sure to include today's date and the title of today's message, and please allow two to three weeks for delivery. For more information about the Florence Baptist Temple, visit our website at www.fbt.org. We also want to extend to you an invitation to join us in person. Sunday school starts every week at 9 a.m. and the service begins immediately following at 10.30. Once again, the church family at the Florence Baptist Temple wants to thank you for tuning in this week. and We hope to see you next week for another edition of the Baptist Temple Hour.